Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Alan Bissett, who is, in the words of his own website, a playwright, a novelist, a performer and a blatherer. Alan has published four novels, Boy Racers, The Incredible Adam Spark, Death of a Ladies' Man and Pac-Men, while his work has also appeared in numerous anthologies. He's also written numerous plays, while The Moira Monologues, a one-woman show that Alan wrote and performed himself, has received widespread critical acclaim and delighted audiences throughout Scotland and beyond, as has the sequel, More Moira Monologues. Alan has also written for TV, penning episodes of the BBC Scotland soap, River City, while he has previously lectured in creative writing at the University of Leeds, and also tutored on the University of Glasgow's prestigious MLIT in creative writing. As if that's not enough, there's also a street in his hometown of Falkirk named after him, Bissett Court. Well, in 2008, I believe the Daily Record named him the 46th hottest man in Scotland. Alan, thanks for joining me on the Read All About It A long time ago. (laughs) Aye, thanks for having me, Paul. I'm reading through what's kind of just a wee potted summary of your CV, and I still feel it kind of only scratches the surface of what you've done over the last 20 years or so, because when I was reading through your website, it's you know, across a whole variety of different platforms, you've just been constantly working and, and constantly busy. And I'm guessing it's just, it has to be a, a real labour of love for you. Aye, aye. I mean, it's what I've always wanted to do. It's what I feel I'm best at, is writing. And once you become a full-time writer, especially once you've got kids, if you stop working, you know, essentially, <laughs> game over. You know, it's like being a shark, you need to keep moving or you'll die. Uh, so just simply by virtue of having been around for the last 20 years, uh, you find that you've, you look back and you've got a body of work behind you. How much of it will be remembered is anybody's guess, but there it is. It's uh, 20 years worth of stuff behind me. Has it kind of evolved as well in terms of, obviously there's the novels, but then, you know, you're writing for the stage, you're writing for TV, you, you know, you do a lot of performance yourself. Is that just things that have, over the period you've evolved your own writing, but also in terms of what you want to do in your professional life? It's a combination of what you're offered, because sometimes somebody will say, do you want to do this thing? And you're like, mm, I'll give it a go. But also where your creative impulses are taking you, you might start to think, well, can I give that a go? I never should have been able to do that, but let's find out. And sometimes it doesn't work. And then you know. But I think if you're any creative person, then you're always trying to push past your own boundaries. If you, if you work within your limits for too long, you start to get stale. And people can feel that and you'll get bored. You know, you, every so often you need to frighten yourself by going, let's try this thing where I might make a total ass of myself. You know, let's write and perform as a woman called Moira. <laughs> and people booked it, but they, it, it could have failed. We always learn something for the failure, you know, it's, it's a journey. Because I wonder that, you know, particularly with the, the Moira monologues, obviously people in any walk of life sometimes get out of their comfort zone, as you say, you're wanting to try different things. Was there a slight, obviously there's a terror, there's a courage in getting up on stage, for example, but was there a terror as well as you, you may, as you say, crash and burn? Because it's something completely different from maybe what you've done before. Well, if there's no terror about it, it's probably not worth doing. I think you have to have that fear 
because that fear uh, is a, a sort of sign that what you're doing could be something that's beyond you and that you could really embarrass yourself. But in the grasping for it, even if you didn't reach it, you've still reached further than where you already are. You know, you've still moved from, from a, a fixed point that you were at before. Uh, so the fear is part of it. And the fear also motivates you and drives you because you want to avoid making an arse of yourself. Um, so the fear is, is necessary. It's not always an enjoyable experience to feel that fear, but it's necessary. And then you get to the other side of it and hopefully you get the, the joy and the rush and the release that you get from performing in front of an audience or, or, or having a, a book out there that's being well received. You know, hopefully you get to that stage as well. What is that phrase? Feel the fear and do it anyway. You, you know, you've got to. And we were speaking just before we started recording the podcast and obviously, you know, we're talking remotely via Zoom and, and the lockdown, obviously the impact on you is, you know, in terms of as a performer, because suddenly live events across the country were completely cancelled. And, and that, you know, how, how is that to deal with in terms of, you know, something you've obviously been working on and gearing up for and suddenly it's, it's not there? Mm. Well, uh, that was pretty scary, I've got to be honest, especially right at the start, the day my first gig got cancelled. And the result they gave was, uh, sorry, we've, we've got to cancel this because of fear of COVID-19. I knew straight away what was coming. And sure enough, like dominoes over the next couple of days, they all fell. And I realised actually that my entire livelihood could be at stake. And the other side of it, obviously, is that the, because I've got two young kids who are four and two, uh, and they need a lot of attention, and they're here all day. So I couldn't really get any writing done. I couldn't write myself out that hole. So it's been a quite a worrying time but it has been for everybody you know I'm not going to sit here and, and complain too much about it because there's people going through a lot worse than me and everybody's going through something I don't think there's anybody who this crisis hasn't affected in a negative way in some respect um, so it's really just about how you then manage it but it has forced me to try and rethink some of the things that I do because if I'm not touring you know how do I, a, how do I bring an income and how do I connect with the audience that's out there so I've started doing uh, club nights I've been Hosting club nights in my village online. I, I used to run them in the village, uh, mainly for parents who couldn't go dancing anymore. So uh, I, I migrated onto Zoom when the lockdown happened and a lot of the regulars went for it. So I've done a few of those and it's always been a really good night. And I'm thinking this is something I could take out to the wider world. So I put a thing up on Facebook and said, anybody fancy this? And folk are, they're, they're going to come along. I, I don't know, you have to react to the, to the situation that you're in and, and look at your own strengths and see what you can make work. You know, I'm, I'm going to make a pretty shit delivery driver. So, you know, <laughs> there's only certain options you've got. In terms of the podcast, obviously we're going to talk about your, your book choices and we'll talk about some of the, again, some of your work. But just before we do, I mean, I, I've always, and again, I've mentioned it on the podcast a few times before about, I think there's, a, there's always a dearth of good football novels, for example. And I think, I don't know whether people forget that actually football's there, but it's actually about the characters. And, Mm-hmm. I read your your novel Pac-Man partly because obviously there was a football connection with it and it was like a group of friends going down to Manchester to see Rangers in the UEFA Cup final. But I was quite intrigued as a Celtic supporter to read it and I thought it was brilliant in terms of the story but also giving people a, a kind of insight into, you know, for me, the other side of the Glasgow football divide as it were. Well, I figured not only is there very few football books, but there are even fewer books written about Rangers fans. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, Paul, but the Scottish Arps theatre, literature, music, it's all Celtic fans. And uh, I've never really been able to explain why that is. There are some Rangers fans, but not no too many, I've noticed. Um, so culturally, I think, in terms of the Scottish arts, you know, there, there is obviously a, a side of Scotland that's not being as represented as, as maybe it, it could have been, cons- certainly considered the size of it. But if you're going to write a novel about Rangers fans, you have to be very careful because there's all sorts of people you could piss off, you know, on many different sides. 
so I, I had to kind of walk a line on it and make sure I was giving people a fair crack of the whip, but no, let them away with nonsense either in, in terms of representation. It was a, a, a tricky line to walk, but I, I've got a lot of fondness for that book, actually. I think it's um, cracks a lot at a fair pace, that one. Yeah, I must admit, I did enjoy it. Obviously, obviously, ultimately, I quite enjoyed the, the end result, but that's as a Celtic oh, fan as I well. suppose as a Celtic fan, <laughs> <laughs> There we are. So in terms, of the, in terms of the podcast, I just like to take everybody on their own kind of literary journey of their life and take you, all, you back to, to childhood and ask you, first of all, for your favourite book from childhood. And the book that, that you've chosen is The Warlock of Firetop Mountain by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. Have you heard of that book? No, I haven't, no. You'll probably remember the genre. Do you remember when, uh, well, I, I, I don't presume what age you are, but I don't think we're that far away in terms of age. There was a series of novels where basically you could choose your own adventure. You choose what way you want the story to go. So if you want to fight the big scary dragon, turn to page 32. If you want to disappear in a, into a cave, turn to page 306. You know, and you could have multiple different options about what way the story went. And obviously I'd read novels up until that point, but I think I can honestly say, Paul, that's the first time I read what you could only describe as experimental fiction. Because in terms of what it was doing, there'd been nothing like that before, really. It's also partly a game. You know, there's a game element to that. You know, there's dice involved and you have to write things down. And, uh, you know, you've got hit points and all this kind of stuff. There's a kind of Dungeons and Dragons-esque element to it. But it is also narrative fiction. And it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. I think they, they sort of invented that genre in the 80s, those series of books. Um, and they did about 50 of them, and I read most of them. They weren't they all amazing, but some of them were just, you're like, well, you could, you could read that book 10 or 15 times and have a completely different experience every time you read it. And I didn't really want to underestimate what a, an achievement that is in terms of children's fiction. These books are never talked about as literature, but they're, they're experimental fiction if ever there was such a thing. I mean, what age would you have been when you were first introduced to them? Maybe 10, I think. I remember going into a bookshop, there was a bookshop in Falkirk called Ingalls, and um, seeing them on the shelf, they had green spines and they were numbered, so they were a series. I, I picked it and you flick through it and it doesn't look like a novel because it's got, you know, strange paragraph breaks and text that's giving you instructions about where to go next in the book. I was like, what the hell is this? So I, I remember buying it in my pocket money and just being like, whoa, and then oh, you gave it to my pals and they all played it and everything. They were, they were very, very addictive books. Um, and up until that point, obviously, I'd read Chronicles of Narnia and the Roald Dahl and stuff, and those, that stuff's all great. But this, I was just like, boof. I think as a writer uh, and a creative person, they probably opened doors in my head as to what was possible within that form uh, in, a, in a strange way. So there we are. What I love about those books is you, you kind of touch on the fact that even at that young age, even if you couldn't have articulated it at that time, it's, it's opening up a kind of imagination. Absolutely. But but it's also but not just an imagination about the content, an imagination about the form. You know, it puts, you, it you, puts you in the book. Aye, exactly. No, because it's no surprise that they, they end up getting turned into video games and computer games as well. But, you know, taking them right back to the fact that, it's liter- as you say, it's literature. As a reader, you're in a book and you can mm-hmm. read books so many different times and get a new feeling on it every time. I mean, it's, it's amazing that it's not been done more often. Aye, and you know, I've always had the thought, what if a, an adult writer was to do that with a literary novel? It's probably been done by somebody, but it did occur to me to give it a go at some point. You know, you've got a guy who works in a factory, and it's just about his daily life. You know, what's he going to do in the way home? Is he going to pop in and see a film? Is he going to go to the boozer? Is he going to go back to his, his uh, wife and kids? You know, what, what's his choices? And then taking him through all the different avenues of where that decision can take him and the, the subsequent decisions that would follow it. And you could get a really 
playful, experimental literary novel doing that, but it would be a bugger to write. <laughs> I, I know, I know. <laughs> That's the thing. So I've always kind of like, okay, I, I'll need to wait until the veins have left school until I tackle that one. <laughs> yeah, because it's kind of like, it reminds me a wee, bit, a wee bit of the film Sliding Doors, where, you know, you, you change one yep. single decision and mm-hmm. everything changes, but that's probably easier to do cinematically, as you say, to sit down and think, how on earth am I going to do this? That would... How do you structure it? Yeah. That, that's the challenge for you. No, well, there we are. You heard it here first. <laughs> but that's, I suppose that's the exciting thing, again, and I've spoken to various writers on this podcast about what it is that engages them, not only as readers, but just plants that seed for being a writer. And, and even, mm. again, I just mentioned, you, you, we couldn't have said maybe at 10 years old, you know, that's experimental fiction, and that's what I want to do, but it's there. Suddenly it's there, and it's always there. You know, it just grows as you get older. Mm. That's right, man. Which actually neatly brings us to the next books because they did the same in a very different way. Well, that's the your favourite books from formative years, and and you've mentioned two. One is Train Spotting by Evan Welsh, and the other one's American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. Aye, I, I couldn't decide between these two because I read them roughly at the same time. I think it was maybe eighteen, and they were sort of contemporaneous of each other. I think American Psycho was nineteen ninety one, and Train Spotting was maybe ninety two. So they, they were of the same moment. And they're very, very different books, but they both had the effect on me of uh, making me feel that literature was something that could be quite dangerous because I'd always been a reader. But up until that point, I'd never read anything that I considered dangerous, by which it carried an air of threat and menace and rebellion and anarchy and broke so many rules. Both of those books, there's no, there's no precedent for them, really. Certainly it wasn't for me. Uh, they're both completely original. I mean, you could say there was James Kilman before there was Irvin Welsh, but hadn't he been harnessed in a, in a way that could make sense to maybe somebody 18-year-old who up until that point was, I was probably in a prolonged Stephen King phase. Stephen King, Clive Barker, wasn't it horror fiction when I was a teenager? Maybe because I was seeking that sense of danger, but I'd never experienced anything like American Cycle or Trainspot, and they were like punk rock. I mean, in terms of like Trainspotting, because one of the things that always sticks in my mind is, I, I, I can't remember if they put it on the cover, at one point, saying it was at one point it was the most shoplifted book in Edinburgh as a kind of badge, <laughs> a badge of honour. But do you think also the language of you know, obviously the style of it, but just because it speaks in a language that that's yours that you understand exactly. Aye, as a Scot and as somebody who grew up working class, I'd never read a book that even remotely resembled the life that I saw outside the window on the scheme where I grew up. Literature and reality were two completely separate things. In fact, I went to literature to get away from reality, hence reading fantasy fiction and sci-fi and horror. You know, it was an escape from reality. But Trainspotting was the first book where I felt reality and fiction merge and realised that depicting the world in in a way that's accurate and authentic and realistic and unvarnished and uncensored was an incredibly exciting thing to do. And that was a complete forking the road for me as a as a writer, but also as a as a person, as a Scot. You know, as it's probably the first time I've ever felt what you could probably call maybe a class consciousness, because the class that I came from just wasn't really represented in, in culture. Or if it was, it was the butt of jokes. You know, you, you used to hear in Scottish working class accents used in comedy, but never uh, with a seriousness of purpose. Uh, and that was a complete revelation to me. It was like a bomb going off. You know, nothing was the same after after train spotting. Um, and I think that was also true of the culture. Train spotting was a fork in the road. It created, partly created the, the Scotland that we're in, I think. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. 
because I always wonder if it, it validated a lot of people, you know, or their aspirations of saying, you know, that way, as you say, maybe the idea of being a writer, of being involved in literature, even if it was aspirational, maybe felt unattainable and suddenly Evan Welsh in, in that book showed the possibility that it was possible to write yeah. about your life, your culture, your background, your country, and it would be taken seriously. Yeah, exactly. Aye, and it was a global bestseller. So you think, hang on a minute, if he can write this book that becomes an enormous commercial hit and is taken seriously as a work of literature, and he's writing about the culture that he came from, I can do the same. That's allowed, that's permissible. And also it persuades the industry that these things are permissible. Because after Irving Welsh, obviously there was a hole opened in the 90s. And I managed to sneak in just at the end when Boy, Boy Racers, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, I would never have found my way towards writing a book like Boy Racers had transport no existing. But it created that moment where Scottish working class fiction was being read by people who didn't normally even read books. And I took that for granted after a while. But then you realise what a rare thing that is. You sometimes see it happening. Um, every so often, maybe 10 years, a writer will break through. But it's a very, very rare thing and necessary. Because I always wonder as well, for somebody like Irvin Welsh, he would have written that book because that's what he wanted to write. But then one of the byproducts is, as you say, people like yourself suddenly think, that's what I can do. And, and it gives you that confidence to, to the pen down on the paper. But you then become mm -hmm. a published author on your own, right? And, you know, expands that the whole Scottish literature of the outlook and, and the people who mm -hmm. can get involved in it and the stories they can tell. I'm sure there must be a wee part of him that thinks, I'm quite happy that I helped in that one wee tiny wee bit in doing that. Well, I hope so. You know, I think that's uh, something he should be aware of if, if he's no. I'd imagine he is. I imagine people have told him that quite a lot. I mean, I've yeah. told him it for a start, so it's probably not the first time he's heard of it, but I think a lot of us uh, writers of my generation have got a, an enormous amount to thank him for. Once he's heard this on the podcast, then he'll definitely know. Because <laughs> <laughs> also it helped, I think, Trainspotting became, obviously it's such a, an iconic book, but then obviously the film in its own right mm -hmm. becomes, and just cements it in our culture. That's right, it magnified it. I mean, there's a whole generation of people, British people, I think it's probably fair to say, not just Scottish people, but when you hear the opening chords of Born Slippy by Underworld, there's a nostalgic rush that takes you back to the 90s that's so powerful that it's, you almost disappear backwards into it. And yeah. the, the present day just fades away and suddenly there you are, you're 18 again, hanging about with your mates, you've just seen Trainspotting and you're young and free. I don't know if you've seen Trainspotting too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it's about. It plays on that idea of nostalgia. But in order to achieve that nostalgia, the original explosion back in the 90s had to have been incredibly powerful. And it was. In terms of the other book you mentioned, uh, American Psycho, I, I think that's one of the most extraordinary books I've mm. read and, and reread and reread. I think it's an incredible book, actually. I do as well. And I think it's much misunderstood. I think it was definitely misunderstood in its day. Less so now, because it's been around for, God, what, nearly 30 years? Nearly we're, 30 get, we're getting years. old. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and inevitably, when something achieves the status of classic, which I think it has, uh, it becomes part of the cultural fabric and it no longer seems quite as shocking as it was. But I would still imagine that if you were to pick that up at the age of 18 year old, having been used to you know reading genre fiction and you read American Psycho, it would still knock your socks off. You'd still have uh, no way of getting your head around the, the risk taking and the, the boldness and the, the confrontational aspect of that book. Not even just in terms of its content, but in its style. You know, the narrative risks it takes are extraordinary. It's prepared to bore the reader for quite a long time. 
before it then realises that you're starting to become hypnotised by the banality of it all, you know, the endless list of products and grooming utensils and him looking around his kitchen and describing everything in it and you know, his beauty routine and you know the albums of Whitney Houston, you're like, what the... You almost go into this trance and then wham, it slaps you right across the face and goes, ah, you're fucking away now, aren't you? <laughs> you know, it makes you re-see the world. I think that's what all the great novels do. They make you re-see the world. That's what I love about the book. As you say, there's, you know, there's chapters on Whitney Houston. I think there's one in Phil Collins. And it's, you know, this almost serious, po-faced music review for, for music that seems so middle-of-the-road nonsense compared to what most of us maybe were listening to. And again, all these lists of what he wears. I, I love mm. the whole that thread of the business cards all the way through <laughs> the novel. Again, I think you're right, because maybe the, the kind of the shock and violence in it was, was what deflected from the fact it was just it's such a brilliant reflection on that world at that time. Absolutely. Aye. It's a satire, you know, and it needs to be read as a satire. But I think in, in terms of its insight into consumer capitalism, and uh, the 80s and high finance, it's unparalleled. It stares right into the darkness, the empty darkness at the heart of capitalism and tells you what it's like, like no other book I've ever encountered. And also it's hilarious. You know, this is the thing about Trainspotting and American Cycle. What they both taught me was not only that you can take risks in terms of what you show and how you show it, but it taught me the value of humour. When you're describing something very, very dark, the darker the material you're looking at, the lighter the touch has to be. Because in order to make people want to go there, you have to be sort of leading them along and telling them jokes along the way. It's a bit like that Edgar Allan Poe story, A Cask of Amontillado. I don't know if you've, you've read that short story. No. Edgar Allan Poe, um, obviously a horror writer of the 19th century, he writes a story about this guy who's got a grudge against this other guy and he gets him drunk and says, come on, I'm going to show you my very finest wine still in the cellar. He's pouring them wine along the way. This other guy's getting drunker and drunker, being really obnoxious and vulgar. Where's this wine? You're going to say, oh, it's just a bit further down. But why don't we stop and have another glass of wine? And then before he knows it, he's led him into this cavern. And the guy's just sitting there wrecked. He's, he's shit-faced. And he starts bricking up the wall in front of him while talking to him and saying, I'm, I'm going to get you a glass of wine now. Just you sit there, I'll go and get it. And he just seals him into this hole in the wall where obviously the guy, presume, st- spends the rest of his days. I think that's what these novels do. Pouring you glasses of wine and you're, they're leading you down a long dark tunnel but, and they're telling you jokes. And before you know it, you've been walled in. <laughs> <laughs> this is not an exit, to quote the final line of American Cycle. Do you know the other thing I always, I always say to people about American Cycle? And I defy MD, if you just pick the book out, you'll never find those moments of horror. I've tried it a few times in a bookshop and I've tried it in my own copy. And that's what I love about it is you have to read the narrative. And as you say, exactly. you're going along and you get immersed in that world. And it's it's a world that is completely alien from us, but it's absolutely captivating. And as you say, then you turn the page and you're punched in the face. And it's in his just... own way, Patrick Bateman's become a cultural icon. And the way that Trainspotting became culturally significant, Patrick Bateman now stands as a symbol for that world of corporate greed. Uh, well, it's certainly, it's, I think it's an, an incredible book, uh, as oh, is Trainspotting, of course. Aye, we're pretty much on the same page here, I think. Yeah. Well, we're going to be fine. Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Alan Bissett. And Alan, we're on to your third book choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is The Secret History by Donna Tart. Aye, uh, I just love that book. I just think it's 
extraordinary uh, and very, very different from the other two novels. In some ways, quite a traditional book told the first person uh, narrative, past tense. It's a, a murder mystery in some respects. But in every other regard, it's so vividly drawn and detailed and atmospheric and you feel like these characters really exist and that you're part of this world, you're inside it and you are, are taken along on a narrative journey that goes places that you're just not expecting. You know, I love it when a story manipulates you and that way you're like, oh, I know what I've got here. And then it flips you and then it flips you again. I just love feeling like I'm in the hands of a... a a master storyteller, and that's what Donna Tart is. I mean, it's a book. It's not a book I've actually read. And I'm not sure is that her first novel. It is her first novel. Yeah. Like eight years to write. Which again, you just you know touching on the fact you're saying you know it's a master storyteller, but it just shows you that the talent there. If that that's what she produces, you know, and has that impact on you as her first novel? Well, exactly. I mean, she she spends something like ten years in every book. I mean, she's released I think three novels. Since The Secret, two, in fact. She's only released three novels in her entire career, The Secret History, uh, The Little Friend, and The Goldfinch. All of them are doorstops. I mean, they're huge books, but she spent a decade in each one of them. She's a, a total perfectionist. She's like Kate Bush. You know, she, she disappears for a long, long time and then comes back with something extraordinary. And I like that commitment to her, to her craft because it's not the way I can write. I don't know if I could disappear for 10 years and one could work in one book. I, I can't imagine it. The discipline it must take for her to do that and the intensity of the focus, it just takes my breath away, it really does. And she said something about writing which I thought was quite profound. She says, the market stimulates writers into overproduction because the chat you get from publishers is, you've got to have another book out in the next two years, preferably next year. You've got to keep producing new product, a bit like the last one, but not too much like the last one because it's their job to sell books and you know I sympathise, that's why they exist. But I also think that is in many ways detrimental to real creativity because real creativity happens when you can't stop it. It happens within you and finds an expression in a way that is beyond financial consideration. Um, And she is that writer. In terms of your own novels, were you ever, you know, after you've written one book, did you, were you ever under pressure that way in terms of can we get something of a similar vein? Or were you clear in your mind that you want to do different things, you want to write about different subjects and because mm. you don't want to pigeonhole yourself? You become aware that there are certain ways in which publishers market books. They, they identify who they think might want to read this book. What else is sold that's like that book and make a decision about whether or not they're going to publish it on that basis. We could probably all relate to stories that we know of people who've written books that are very, very fine books, but they don't know how to market it. They don't know what genre to put it in. And that ultimately is what they'll base their decision on because they're business people. So you're always aware of those pressures. You know, you, you can never never completely surrender them, but you need to go on with the business of writing a book that you want to write. Because if it's a book that you want to write, then hopefully that means it's a book that people will want to read. Because I always feel as well, from the writer's point of view, that you know that way you, you maybe have the idea and that initial burst of creativity and you think... This is the best thing that I've. This is it. This is this is the book. Mm-hmm. But there is a period where it's the real hard graft. It's the getting down to it every day because you have to get through it because that initial burst is, is gone. But you know you have to keep going. And if it's not something that you you're really committed to, you can get bogged down or you, you can leave it aside and you never end up finishing it. Or if it's a book that you feel you've got to write because you're contracted to write it. Or, you know, this is the next book in the series that your publisher wants for you. It's all those. All those things can just take the fun away from you. And if that happens, then, you know, what's the point? Because the reader will pick up on it. Your heart's still in it. 
So Donna Tartt, her heart is in every single book, every single line, you, and you can feel it. There's no, there's no mistaking that. And I just really admire a writer like that. It's about a group of college friends, really intellectual college friends who are obsessed with the classics, and they decide to kill one of their own as an intellectual exercise. That's the, the basic premise of the plot, but the, the novel's about 600 pages long. You, you just get immersed in a, a really sometimes very beautiful and atmospheric and disturbing world that feels more real than the world that you've just left. Because you put the book down and it takes you a while to look around and feel that the reality you inhabit is as strong as the one that you've just left. That's the gift that she's got. It's a beautiful book. That's the book I always give people as a gift. And not one single person has read that book. I've given that book to about a dozen people. Not one of them has read it and said they didn't like it. And if they did, I'd think they were a fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) See, I like that, the fact that sometimes you you can, you know that way, because I often say, you know, it's all about opinions because it's a subjective thing. But I like the fact that you are judging people on their reaction to the book. Well, everybody does, you know. You judge, if there's bands that you love and then you meet somebody that hates them, you respect them a wee bit less. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's honest, but very true. The one thing I was going to ask, actually, is in, you know, in terms of maybe it's, whether it's right, reading a book like The Secret History, can you read it just as a reader or are you always... It's always part of you as a writer, wanting to know what they're doing, trying to learn, take things on board, or just it's a different experience than just purely reading the book as, as a reader. I think the two things happen simultaneously. You experience it as a reader, just being captivated by the story and the language and allowing yourself to submit to the magic spell that the writer is weaving. But you can't ever completely surrender the writer part of you that knows how stories work that is also applying that to what you're reading and, and learning from it. Because you learn from everything, even the bad stuff. The two things happen simultaneously. You, you realise at the end of it, if you've enjoyed it, you're starting to go through and go, well, why did I enjoy that? What did it do? Where did it take me? What were the tricks that it happened in front of me? That's the fun. You know, that's, that's why writing never gets tired. It takes you on to the book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And that book is Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. Aye. I think it's just silly. I think it's just gibberish. Uh, when I was working at Glasgow University, I wrote a blog for The Guardian about the cult of Joyce and how I just didn't sign up to it. Dubliners, obviously, I get as great works of realist literature and portrait the artist as a young man. I, I don't find these things thrilling to read, but I, I can see that they are well-written, obviously. Ulysses is about as far as I go. I find it difficult to, to read, but there's also passages of it I find incredibly beautiful. Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of that. It's so mellifluous and there's still a sense there. You know, there's still a sense there. The style is being used to enhance the, the, the meaning of it. But with Finnegan's Wake, he's just disappeared up his own arse. And nobody else... I mean, the fact that you need supplementary materials in order to understand it, I think, tells its own story. I mean, in terms of, again, when I was talking earlier on about your, your novels, apart from, obviously, in your head, planning this adult fantasy game game book that you're going you're gonna to write for us, but are you, are you constantly get ideas? Are you constantly working on things and, and something at some point will just emerge as the, the project you want to work on? Less so these days, because sometimes you need to accept commissions, but I didn't accept any commission I'm no interested in. Um, so somebody will come to you with an idea, either a producer or somebody who's got some sort of funding to do something. And they'll say, is this a thing you'd like to work on? And you say, I or no. And I've found some really fun, creative experiences that way that I maybe wouldn't have found had I not been offered that particular project. But sometimes an idea 
bubbles up inside you that doesn't have any external stimulus to it. Nobody's saying, I'll pay you to write that. It demands to be written. Basically bangs on your door and says, let me out, let me out, let me out. And that's a really exciting feeling. And I've not been able to write a thing over lockdown because the kids have been here and I'm feeling that bagging inside. I've got two or three ideas that I think are quite forcefully demanding to emerge. And now that the kids are back at nursery, I can write them. In the introduction, I, you know, it describes you as a playwright, a novelist, performer, a blitherer. Do you have in your head a specific thing you, you would like to focus on? Or, or do you like the fact that you've not boxed yourself in? Aye, aye. Because sometimes an idea will come through and you think, oh, that's quite a big idea. Maybe try and save that for a novel. Oh, right, that, that feels like a play shape. You know, I can fit that into the format of a play. Oh, this might actually just be a monologue. You know, I can maybe, that might be five minutes long. And so the, the shape of the idea as it emerges in your head basically chooses the form that it wants to be written in because they're different sizes. If one of them is primarily dialogue-based and, and what you're hearing is characters talking to each other, then it's probably a play. If what you're seeing is images or what you're feeling is story, then it maybe needs to be a novel. Well, obviously, as you say, the, the kids are, are back at nursery, then you will get back down oh, to it. So. raring to go, raring to go. That must be a nice feeling as well, that chance to just to get back to doing what you, what you enjoy and what you like doing best. There's no better feeling in the world than feeling hungry. You know what I mean? I, I don't mean physically hungry yeah, for your yeah. dinner. <laughs> That's not a nice feeling. I mean, um, any person who has a project that they want to push forward and they're passionate about, whatever that is, it doesn't have to be a creative project, any project of any kind that they feel ownership of and invested in, and they feel that they've got the, the tools to be able to make it happen. That's a great feeling. That's as good as work gets because work is something that we're all saddled with. And work can have many different meanings to many different people. Some people hate their work. Some people find it destroys them slowly for the inside. Other people feel nourished by their work. Maybe other folks sit somewhere in between that, those two polar extremes. But whatever your work is, if you feel passionate about doing it and hungry for the, for the outcome, then that tells you that you're in the right place. We are now on to your last book choice, and that is the, either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading, and the book you've chosen is Scabby Queen by Kirsten Innes. Do you know that book? Do you know, I ahead of, not ahead of the podcast, but today I actually bought a copy. I'll pass that on to you. Uh, Kirsten Innes, um, for transparency's purpose, is my partner. We've been together for 14 years. We live together. We've got two kids together. And when we were first dating, I was already a writer and she knew I was a writer. She'd read my stuff, as it happens. And I remember her saying quite early on, oh, you know, I write as well. And I was like, oh, no, what if she's shit? <laughs> she gives, I'd already fallen in love with her, you know. What if she gives me her work and I read it and it's pish? How did I have that conversation? And I read it and I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. And I was like, oh, I go for it, go for it, definitely. And that was maybe 12 years ago and our first novel, Fishnet, came out four or five years ago, and that was a hit. It won a, a Guardian Award, and she'd been working on this book, Scabby Queen, and she gave me the first draft of it two years ago, and I thought it was a masterpiece. I was like, you've done what bands do in their second album. You know, you get a really great debut, and it sort of encapsulates who they are. It's like almost like a kind of statement of intent, and then in their second album, they go a bit more widescreen and ambitious, and, you know, there's, there's maybe more experimental and dense, and they're, they're just pushing the boundaries, exactly what we were talking about earlier, they're pushing beyond their own boundaries. She's done that second album after the really exciting debut. It's a terrific book, and I'm really, really proud of her. And sometimes I, I read it and think, 
I can't even believe I'm going out with her. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? You, I've never been it, the second best writer in a relationship before. <laughs> do you ever, do you ever, does it ever take you back when you think of that, as you say, when, when she first told you she, she wrote it? Does it ever take you back to that thought where you're thinking, oh God, I hope she's good? No, she turned out to be uh, possibly one of the best writers in Scotland. I think she really is. I think she's one of the best writers in Scotland and, and beyond. You know, I think it's got to be Queen's a book that everybody should read. And I'm not just saying that because she's my partner. Uh, I think it's a really important book and it's certainly better than anything I feel I could manage which is a, a really exciting thing to see your partner doing do you know that way sometimes when when books come out and you're just aware of there's just a kind of there's an excitement about it there's an excitement mm-hmm. about the book and you can you know people are either the first reviews come in or people have had a glimpse at it and then it hits the shelves and people are reading it and it's just this it's almost like a snowball effect of people just absolutely raving about it and that's i've got that feeling with that book over the last month or two that you know the talk of it the buzz about mm-hmm. it, it just there's a mm-hmm. real excitement about it um nicola sturgeon tweeted about it i went into the living room one night and she's sitting dming nicola sturgeon the two of them are chatting away nicola sturgeon's like oh, i love your book i think you're amazing kirsten's like oh my god i love you i think you're amazing and i'm like holy shit <laughs> <laughs> i'll get the dishes done shall i <laughs> Uh, aye, she's had a lot of praise, but she deserves it, quite frankly. She hides her bushel under a light. She would never make these claims for herself, but I think she's a genius. The good thing is, as well is that I, I would imagine, you know, you know yourself as a writer, once the real judge is, is when the book comes out and when readers who don't know you at all, or just, you know, maybe just they see the book, they see the cover, they like the idea, they pick the book up, they buy it, they go home and read it and they love it. And that's that must be so fulfilling because it's somebody who doesn't know you and it's just mm-hmm. something that started in your head on the page and it, it mm-hmm. means something to someone else yeah, it's a real privilege aye absolutely to think that you might be able to do that for somebody and because you think about when that's happened to you the books that you've read when basically you've spent six seven eight hours inside another person's head that's what you're doing when you read a novel and they show you something that you've never seen before or make you think in a way that you've never thought before and they rearrange your mental furniture you know that's the wonderful things about novels I honestly think novels can do that more than any other art form because they take so long to consume. You spend longer absorbing it, and, they, and so there's more potential for it to change you. Because the other interesting thing I thought with the book and about Kirsten and, the, and the, the praise, there was a thing, somebody put a thing out a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, and it was it was almost like bemoaning where are the, all the great Scottish female writers in, in relation to like some of the mm-hmm. Irish writers, and I think they'd mentioned Sally Rooney and some others. And yeah. obviously there was a bit of a, you know, people then responded and said, well, actually, there's loads of good female writers. You know, Kirsten yeah. was one of the ones that mentioned, and it was, it was a kind of dismissive from somebody who hadn't even bothered doing any research, to be fair. That article was discussed in our household, yes. I'll you leave know. it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think sometimes Scottish literature either doesn't get the same attention or is, is highly regarded as it should be when you think of, when you'll know a lot of the, some of the great work that, you know, men and women have been doing for the last 20, 30 years, you know? Well, within the context of British literature, Scottish literature will always be marginal because within the context of Britain, Scotland will always be marginal. Uh, so, you know, the, the political reality is reflected in the culture there. But we've learned to work within that and also think that working within the margins can produce some really exciting results, which is why we've had so many novels for Scotland over the last 30, 40 years that have been so ferociously challenging and exciting and different. Well, as I say, I... Uh... I was in the bookshop today, so I have a copy. Uh, so that's uh, I'll be reading that. Hope you enjoy it. I, I'm sure I will. Well, it's, I mean, it's obviously the highest praise that it's got from you. But as I say, I, I think it's just been, I haven't seen anything negative at all about it. I think people have just absolutely loved it. We'll pass that on.
again, we just just before we we finish up, we, we touched on the fact that you're you're keen to get back into to writing again, and I suppose we don't really know what's ahead of us in terms of will we be able to get back to doing live performances as well? And I suppose you just have to see how these things unfold over the the weeks and months ahead. No way of knowing, you know. Nobody knows when theatres are going to be open again, and if they are open, how much they're going to be commissioning. If they have to socially distance, and their box office revenues could be cut by two thirds. You know that. The industry, the whole theatre industry, I think, is extremely worried. Um, so I think I need to go on with writing a book. Well, we'll look forward to, to seeing the results of that. But um, I have to say, Alan, it's been a, a real joy uh, talking to you tonight on um, about your, your favourite books. If MD wants to just cast their eyes over Alan's book choices again, if you go to my website, com. Every guest on the podcast has their own individual page, and I just list all the, the book choices uh, of the books that uh, are their favourite and not-so-favourite books. But, uh, Alan, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at PaulCuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.